Our preacher for this morning is Phil Waite. Do you join me in a prayer of blessing for Phil? God, you have been Phil's dwelling place throughout his life. Today we trust that deep bond as he preaches and as your spirit guides us to new knowledge and action. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The grace and peace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Then they came to Jerusalem, and he entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling and those who were buying in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry anything through the temple. He was teaching and saying, Is it not written, My house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when the chief priests and the scribes heard it, they kept looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him, because the whole crowd was spellbound by his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. The word of the Lord. Our scripture this morning begins in the village of Anatote. The village of Anatote. Anybody heard of the village of Anatote? you know where Anatote is? Anybody? A few people know where Anatote is. It's a very important uh, village uh, to our story today, believe it or not. Anatote is a village that no longer exists, uh, as far as we know. It, uh, but it did exist, and when it existed, it was in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. Now, the tribe of Benjamin had a unique uh, place in the history of Israel in that it was a kind of a buffer uh, w between the two kingdoms. When Israel split into the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah, Benjamin was kind of in between. And, and as a buffer, sometimes it would be dominated by Judah, the southern kingdom, and sometimes it would be dominated by Israel, the northern kingdom. So Anatot was, was uh, in the northwestern part of, of, the, of, of the territory of Benjamin. And when Israel collapsed, when the Assyrians conquered the northern kingdom in the year 722, eventually Judah managed to take over the whole territory of Benjamin and make it part of the southern kingdom. Now Anatot is the birthplace and the hometown where he was raised of the prophet Jeremiah. This mattered greatly to Jeremiah's ministry. Now, how many of you were born? How many of you were born someplace? There's not a trick question, pretty straightforward. The answer is yes, I was born. Yes, I was born someplace. The place uh, that I was born, Portland, Oregon, is meaningful to me. 
I like to think that it says something about who I am. I was born in Portland. That, that, that very fact, that, that simple fact of my life, if you know nothing else about me, the fact that I was born in Portland tells you something of significance about me. And the fact of where, where I was raised tells uh, something uh, of significance about me. When you're meeting with somebody uh, and you say, well, where are you from? Well, you know, for many of us who live in Goshen, we're from someplace else, but we live here. And so when we're traveling someplace else, well, I guess I'm kind of from Goshen, Indiana, but I'm not really really from there. I'm from these other places that have been important in my life. So our geography, the geography of our lives is important. Where we were born and where we were raised was important. And it shapes us. It shapes who we are and how we think. And this was certainly true for the prophet Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah was a descendant of a priestly line, the priestly line of Abiathar. And when Solomon became king, when David died, when King David died, there was a dispute as to who would be the king. Which of David's sons would ascend to the throne? And there were two priestly orders, priestly, two priests from two lines, Zadok and Abiathar. And Zadok backed Solomon and Abiathar backed Solomon's brother. He backed the wrong horse, if you will. And so Solomon said, okay, Abiathar, I'm not going to kill you, but I'm going to exile you to Anatot. That's where you're going to be, in Anatot. And this, of course, was before the temple was built because Solomon built the first temple. So Abiathar and this priestly line became kind of a, a minor uh, priestly family, not the high elite aristocratic priestly family of the line of uh, what became the line of Zadok, but a lesser line, exiled to Benjamin, outsiders to the culture of court and temple in Jerusalem, outsiders to the, to the power center the power elite. A little suspicious of what went on there, you might say. Now, in ancient times, temples were especially important political places. The, 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 any kind of notion of the separation of church and state did not exist. A temple was a decidedly political place. It was the seat, the presence of the God of the people. And as the seat and presence of the God of the people, it was a sign of legitimacy for the ruling authorities. As long as their God resided in the temple, their rule was legitimate. They were the right rulers. They were the ones who should be in charge because the gods ordained their rule or God ordained their rule. And this was true for the, the king and the court and the priestly aristocracy in Jerusalem. The presence of God in the temple in Jerusalem gave legitimacy to the ruling power and promised safety and protection. Now, when Jeremiah, 
entered into his prophetic ministry and moved to Jerusalem, he challenged this common wisdom. As an outsider, as someone suspicious of the elite in Jerusalem, his understanding of what legitimized those who were ruling was very different than they had of themselves. Jeremiah did not believe it was the temple that gave legitimacy to the ruling elite. Their right to rule did not come from the fact that the temple was present in Jerusalem. And so uh, Jeremiah goes to Jerusalem, you can read in chapter 7, and he says sarcastically to the people, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. I keep hearing about the temple of the Lord all the time. And I'm tired of it, he says. The temple of the Lord cannot protect you. You are doomed. You will not be safe. The Babylonians are coming for you. And they will destroy this temple. The one thing required of you, Jeremiah says in chapter 7, is that you stop oppressing the foreigner and that you stop oppressing the orphan and you stop oppressing the widow. The marginalized, the poor among you, those on the edges of your society, are the ones you should be focused on. And that is what gives legitimacy to your rule. Not the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, Jeremiah says. And he goes on in chapter 7, and he says, You people have turned the temple into a den of thieves. Not only is it not a monument to the presence of God, not only is it not the house of God, you have made it into something else, a den of thieves. Does that sound familiar? Den of thieves. You're making the connection now? Den of thieves. Now, one thing about uh, Jeremiah is that God uh, told Jeremiah to go do things, to dem sort of prophetic demonstrations, if you will, sort of object lessons of prophecy. So Jeremiah did stuff like smash clay jars, and he would go into the temple and perform kind of prophetic drama, prophetic theater, if you will. This is Jeremiah was, was famous for doing this, and, and, and it was part of his prophetic ministry. And Jesus ties himself in the cleansing of the temple, going into the temple, to the prophet Jeremiah by what he says, but also by what he does. He is going into Jerusalem and enacting a prophetic drama when he turns over the tables and turns over uh, the chairs of the money changers. And when he says... It is written that my house shall be a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. He is recalling the prophet Jeremiah. And he is siding with a tradition that says, 
This temple cannot protect you. Your legitimacy, ruling elite, your legitimacy, temple priest, your legitimacy, uh, aristocracy, comes from doing justice. That is what gives you legitimacy. Now, in this time, in the time of, of, of Jesus, in first century Palestine, the political arrangements were fragile. Fragile. And the, the, the ruling Judeans, the people of Judea, were given a certain amount of autonomy by the, by the Romans. They kind of were a semi-autonomous region, if you will. They had the power to conduct a significant amount of their own political, economic, and judicial affairs. The Romans let them do this. It's a great deal for the Romans because they don't want to mess with all that stuff. They want, Romans want certain things as an imperial power, and if they can get somebody else to do the hard work of day-to-day uh, -day retail ruling and... Um, judicial activities and buying and lending and all those kinds of things, that's great. That's a good deal for them. So this fragile arrangement was centered on the temple. The temple gave legitimacy, just as in Jeremiah's day, the temple gave legitimacy to the ruling authorities. And Jesus posed a real threat to them, Jesus was dangerous to that fragile order. We often, uh, we often kind of sweep this under the rug. And we want to say, Jesus, Jesus was not a threat to anybody. Jesus was innocent. He didn't do anything wrong. Well, it's true that he was innocent and didn't do anything wrong, but he was dangerous, extremely dangerous. And the authorities recognized his danger. It's no accident that at the end of this passage... Um, the, 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 the scribes and the Sadducees, they say, uh, we gotta, the chief priests, they say, we've got to figure out how to get rid of this guy. He's dangerous. This fragile arrangement that we have um, could come crashing down. I mean, he personally isn't very powerful. He doesn't command an army. He's not taking up arms. But he could upset the people. And if he upsets the people and they stop giving us any kind of support, this is going to come crashing down on us. And to prove the point, some decades after Jesus, the temple was destroyed. The Romans destroyed the temple as a response to a revolt. The order was, in fact, fragile, and it did come eventually crashing down. Jesus was a threat to the powers that be. Now, I'm, I've been trying to think about what, uh, what compares in our time to the temple. What would it be like if Jesus were to come today and perform an act like this in the temple? And because the temple was such a, such a national political center, an e economic center, and not just, a, not just a religious center, not just a holy site, uh, and a cultural center. It's, it's difficult to, to wrap my mind around it. So I've come up with this. It's as if, as if the 
National Gallery, um, the Smithsonian, the Capitol Building, the uh, Central uh, Bank or the Federal Reserve Building, and the Supreme Court were all rolled into one place. That's what the temple was like. And imagine Jesus going into that place, the Central Bank and the National Cathedral and the National Gallery and the Smithsonian and the Supreme Court all rolled into one. And he starts turning over furniture and says, these places are meant to serve all the people, and you have turned it into a payday loan franchise. Shame on you. Shame on you. God's going to do this in if you don't repent. Now, what do you think would happen to somebody who would do that? Well, surely they would be arrested in our day, right? Being security and all that. Um, they probably wouldn't be taken too seriously as a threat in the way that Jesus was. But without a doubt, it would be a powerful statement. This is the first Sunday in Lent. And Lent is about our journey with Jesus, about following Jesus to the cross. And this year in Lent, I want us to remember that Jesus is dangerous. And that we follow, when we follow Jesus, we are taking on risk. We are following a dangerous man. A man who is confronting unjust powers. And those unjust powers are going to do him in. Are we going to follow that Jesus is the question and what are the ways that we have been uh, less than courageous in following Jesus in our own lives? And what is Jesus calling us to at this time in our lives? What greater courage is Jesus calling us to as God's people in this time? Now, it's true, and I say some version of this every Lent, and I think it's important to say that we aren't totally depraved and we aren't totally righteous. There are times when each of us is like the rich young ruler who's been asked to, to sell all his possessions and give them to the poor. There are times that, that, that we are like the rich young ruler who walk away dejected because that's risky. That's dangerous. But there are other times that we're like Zacchaeus, who is extravagant in repentance and giving everything away. We are both of those. And it's important to remember during Lent that there are times that we are Peter denying Christ, and there are times that we are Peter embracing Christ. It's part of what it means to be human. But this Lent, I ask us to renew our commitment to follow the dangerous Christ, to follow the risky Christ, and to ask ourselves what that means. When we celebrate communion, 
we believe that this is a sign of the presence of Jesus in our midst. Jesus is here with us in this place. And when you stand up and go into the aisle and walk down this aisle to receive the bread and the cup, you are committing yourself. You are saying, I will follow Jesus wherever he goes, even if it's cleansing the temple, even if it's turning over tables in the Supreme Court, even the National Gallery or the National Cathedral or the Capitol Building. I will follow wherever he goes. So as we partake this morning, and even those of you who who will not come down the aisle but will, will receive in your seats, I want you to put your place in that place of following Jesus, of walking in his footsteps. Will you join me? We will follow, we will follow.